Hi, and thanks for listening to the Big Time Talker Podcast. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network live in Washington, D.C. I'm Burke Allen, and the program is service of our friends at Speaker Match. SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest virtual online speakers bureau. If you're a keynote speaker or meeting planner, your whole world is upside down with COVID-19. Figure out how to do your events virtually or plan ahead for 2021 at SpeakerMatch.com. And speaking of COVID-19, there's so much information out there and so much new data that comes out every day. We wanted to go to somebody who has spent the last several months crunching the numbers, paying attention to what's really happening out there. He's distilled a lot of that information in his new book, COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial, available exclusively at Amazon.com. Michael Beatrice joins us from uh, Dallas, Texas, and he knows of what he speaks. Michael, there was a headline a few weeks ago about how the United States has passed 5 million, million coronavirus cases. That's enough to give an awful lot of people pause. You say, though, that that is not something that we should be tied up on. Welcome to the show and tell me why not. Why is 5 million not such a big deal? Thank you, Berg. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, and so uh, the, the 5 million number is a daunting number when you see it splashed across headlines uh, uh, on television or in uh, the newspapers, and it, it, it's got a daunting feel to it. The, the thing with the cases terminology is it suggests an illness or a hospitalization. That's what we think of a hospital case. We think of something, somebody that's sick. Uh, and most of those cases, uh, the, the vast majority, I mean, high percent to 75, 80%, whatever, they're, um, they're not hospitalized. They're not even symptomatic. And so uh, the first thing is, those cases really don't don't uh, suggest that there's a they do they don't indicate that there's an actual illness. The other thing is based on samplings, random samplings that have been done in different parts of the U.S. in the spring, and now we're doing broad testing. There's a uh, pretty good chance, based on data we're seeing in Texas and Florida um, and New York, that we have an actual infection rate of something much, much higher, probably in the 25 to 30% range. That puts the actual number of cases at something like maybe 90 million. And so if you start taking uh, the 90 million potential cases that we have, and then the CDC's offered up that 55% of the total deaths are actually caused by COVID-19, not with the virus, that number ends up closer to 90,000. And so what you're really looking at is an infection fatality rate of about one in a thousand. And then that puts us in the ballpark of the flu. And so certainly COVID-19 has caused excess deaths and it's more dangerous than the flu, right. but it's only more dangerous to a small segment of the population. That's why the median age of fatalities is hovering around or higher than life expectancy in every country of the world. Michael Beatrice, our guest today. The new book is COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial. If you'd like to uh, send a question in on our Blog Talk Radio chat room, we'll pose them to Michael because what you're saying is going to be contrary to what an awful lot of people believe out there, and for good reason. So I I guess we should establish right up front, you are not a physician, you're not a medical doctor, you're a researcher and an analyst who started crunching these numbers when, uh, when COVID first hit. But your, uh, your research tells you that there actually are way more cases of coronavirus in the United States, up to 90 million, which is almost a third of the population. But 
that's not necessarily a bad thing. The number to watch is what? Hospitalizations? How many people actually get sick enough to go to the hospital? Right. So hospitalizations is the truest number to really take a look at. So there's a little bit of cloudy data with all this. We just talked about cases. Hospitalizations get coded. uh, Anybody with the virus that's in a hospital gets coded as a COVID-19 hospitalization. Uh, Certainly, there's a number of patients that catch the virus in a hospital, so they would test positive, or they might go in for something else and be positive for the virus, but not be symptomatic from it, and then that gets coded. But but generally speaking, hospitalizations is probably the best metric uh, to look at. And right now, we are at practically a five-month low in COVID-19 hospitalizations, and I don't see that in very many headlines this week. So that's interesting. And and you say then um, that that in New York City, where it was really bad in, in April and May, um, that's an outlier. That's not what's going to be coming in the autumn, because I think that's what we're all afraid of, is when the weather starts to turn, that it's going to get like it, it was in New York City back in the springtime. But your numbers don't show that at all. It seems very unlikely that uh, that we would have anything close in the winter time, fall or winter, like we had in the spring. The reason is it's it's a single virus, and so it's not a flu virus. It kind of changes and mutates every single season. Um, with this staying constant and so many people having been infected, it seems very unlikely that there would be a second wave. We haven't seen a second wave of deaths anywhere in the world. We've seen the, the way this thing has gone. We've seen high cases, high hospitalizations, and high deaths everywhere in the world in March and April. It starts to lay down in May and June. Cases in Europe and the U.S. start to rise significantly in the summer. Uh, and the reason is there's, uh, there's spread. There's uh, huge testing that's going on. The spread is with people that are less vulnerable. But what you're not seeing is deaths rise at the same curve that they did in the spring with cases. You had similar looking curves in the spring of cases and deaths. You don't see that right now. You're seeing a high curve of cases, very high, uh, but but not, an, not a commensurate curve uh, on fatalities. The book is COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial. The author is Michael Beatrice. That's B-E-T-R-U-S. If you want to check it out on uh, Amazon.com and pick up a copy and, and look at the numbers for yourself, um, a lot of people, frankly, I don't think are going to buy into what you're selling here. So, so I'm going to dig a little bit deeper. And, and I want to go back to the beginning. As I read part of your book, um, this all started with you looking at those cruise ships that were in the news in the first couple of weeks. And there was a, you know, a, a big controversy about whether they should be allowed to dock here. And, and you looked at That's those right. and, and compared the numbers from those cruise ships to a certain extent, to the the foundational studies that all the world leaders used, which I think was an Oxford study or Imperial College of London or somewhere like that. So can you give me an idea of the basis? You know, if, if, if your numbers are right and what most of the world's leaders are saying are wrong, you're going to have to set that up and sell that to me a little bit. Sure, sure. So I did start following this. Uh, initially, it was just a headline. And when the Grand Princess cruise ship was set out to sea and not allowed to uh, port in anywhere right. uh, in very early March, uh, I, I, I followed it like everybody else. It was all over the news. And when it was going through the um, San Francisco Bay and porting in, there was sort of a 
feeling like it was a leper colony that was coming in. And then nothing happened. Nobody died. Three people ended up dying later, but nobody died. And there really weren't hospitalizations of people coming off and, you know, needed to go to the ICU or ER. And I just thought that was puzzling for, for a, quote, pandemic that prompted even Wuhan to lock down, which was really the only place at that time that had locked down. So then a few days later, uh, ten, uh, 10 days later, the Imperial College model came out that predicted 2.2 million Americans dying in a do-nothing scenario. And I thought, gosh, if 2.2 million Americans, that's, that's about exactly what the Spanish flu impact would be in today's population numbers. I thought it seems very odd that more people wouldn't have uh, been hospitalized and, and died uh, on those cruise ships, which was a very self-contained, almost a, a perfect scientific experiment. So I started reconciling some numbers, and I plugged in the Imperial College model metrics into the cruise ship data. The two cruise ships that we're talking about, they were both Princess Cruises. They had 7,400 passengers. Based on the Imperial College model data, 155 passengers should have died on those two ships, and there were 10, and all 10 were elderly. And so it's, it, what that demonstrated was that there is an identifiable segment of the population that's vulnerable. Whatever we do, those people should really be protected and insulated. And so instead, what I feel like the, uh, the governments, our leaders in really all over the world, but Europe and let's say the United States here for sure, what they did was they did this uh, sort of sweeping peanut butter spread, one size fits all, lockdown, and they didn't, very few countries or states took extra precautions for the elderly, which was the only segment that was really, um, really at risk. <clears throat> and as a result of that, uh, we did have elderly fatalities that ended up playing out because those, those people, um, weren't really well protected right. and we've really had no significant fatalities in any, uh, any, really any age group under, under 65 that doesn't have, uh, two or three identifiable preexisting conditions. So look, I want to believe this. I, you know, I'm one of those guys that, that wants to think this is not as bad as it appears to be. But damn, Michael, there are times when it looks really bad. And when you see, uh, you know, freezer trucks parked outside hospital emergency rooms because there are too many, you know, dead people to fit into the morgues, that's some scary stuff. So, so I think we should establish right now, are, are you one of those guys that is a, a COVID-19 denier? Are you one of those people that say, ah, it's no big deal. This is just like a cold. You people get over it. Are you one of those guys? No, COVID-19 is absolutely real, and there's no doubt that uh, some hospitals in New York City were slammed, and they had a very, very high rush of uh, ICU patients and fatalities. And Detroit has a similar situation in three or four hospitals uh, there. New Orleans at that same time did. There's no doubt that this is real. The question is not really, is COVID-19 real? The question that all of us need to sort of deal with is, what is the proportionate response? COVID-19 is real, is it real enough to the general populace to justify things like 40 million unemployed, uh, the, the, the lockdowns, schools not reopening? Those are the questions that need to be weighed. It's all a balance. Everything we do in, in public policy is about, you know, sort of balancing risk and consequence. So no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, in no way am I a COVID-19 denier. My mom's 88 and her husband, same age. 
Uh, they live in the city uh, of Detroit, and we've been, our brother and I have been very cautious about uh, letting them out of the house or, uh, and circulate while this is going on. So, no, it's real. It's just, it's a, the whole uh, book, COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial, is about the proportionate response. Well, let's get into a couple of those things. And by the way, Michael Beatrice, our guest today, his book is COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial. There's a link to it uh, here on our homepage, but you can also pick it up right now at Amazon.com. That's Michael Beatrice, B-E-T-R-U-S, and it's it's all data-driven. Um, but I, I did want to get into that and, and see what's really inside your head beyond the data. So right now we are thick in the middle of the back-to-school debate. Uh, where there is a debate. In some places, there is no debate. You know, I'm here in, in suburban Washington, D.C., and, uh, you know, in early July, the school system here said, kids are not coming back. We're doing this online TFN. Uh, and you're seeing that in a lot of school systems. But in other places, moms and dads everywhere have to make what I think may be one of the toughest decisions they'll ever have to make, a heart-wrenching decision. Uh, you know, you're going to send your kids back to school. Some of the early uh, schools that came back, saw a, a huge explosion of cases in public schools and universities where they had to close the universities down. Now, earlier you said cases, not such a big deal, that you know most of those kids are asymptomatic. However, what does your data say about those kids bringing them back to mom and dad and grandma and grandpa? You know, what if your son goes to school and then he goes up to visit your 88-year-old mom in Detroit? and gets uh, your mom sick. That's that's bad news. So what does the data tell you about all that? Well, I think th- there, there's probably two or three points on this. One is kids have proven to really not be transmitters of this. So where they are transmitters, they're the number, kids are the number one transmitters of flu viruses. Most people catch the flu from kids. Uh, and most people don't catch it from uh, COVID-19 or, or SARS-CoV-2 uh, from children for some reason. This virus does not seem to be transmittable or hasn't proven to be through children. All right, now let me, let me stop you right there because uh, you're exactly right. I remember when my son was elementary school age, I mean, it, that kid was like a Petri dish. You know, they would all pass yeah. it around and, and, you know, you bring it home and then everybody gets sick in the house and it's cyclical for the first four months of public school. You say kids are not transmitters of this. How do you know? Well, the data just hasn't supported it. There's just no tracing based on studies that have come up in uh, Denmark, in Finland, and in Sweden, where kids have gone back to school. And even if they've, uh, there's been infections, I hate, don't even like using that word, but somebody who was carrying the virus had been exposed to it. Um, there, there hasn't been really con- contact tracing evidence of them going back to spread it in their homes. It, it just hasn't happened. And so, again, there's a, there's a point of, of – uh, what is the proportionate response? And so in the kids' situation, it seems the biggest no-brainer of any of the decisions that we make. I mean, how, how do we – we allow kids to do play dates. We allow kids, uh, younger people, let's say, to work at grocery stores and fast food restaurants, but we can't allow them to go to school. Yeah. So one thing that I think is interesting is the CDC director, uh, Redfield, came out two weeks ago, and he said school should be open, kids should be going back to school for whatever uh, criticisms I might have of how the CDC handled this early on in terms of their communication and protection for the elderly, that was a strong, strong statement because you know they're erring on the side of caution. And they said all schools should be open. 
And yet, that did not go over well and did not get a whole ton of play. Interesting. Michael Beatrice is our guest. His new book is COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial. If you want the data and and some analysis to support it, you can pick it up at Amazon.com online. And uh, if you're a prime guy, I guess, or a lady, you can have it delivered tomorrow. So, So if you had a student in high school or college, would there be any trepidation in the Beatrice household about sending that young person back to school? No, I, I haven't a college age student and I'm, I'm infuriated that his classes are online. He, he goes to Oklahoma and, and one of his classes this semester is in person. The other three have moved to online and there just isn't any data to support that college age kids are at any risk. Uh, and uh, they, certainly they could spread it, but spreading it, you know, what you hear a lot is this Notre Dame closed and, and North Carolina and Michigan State closed. They all moved to be online classes because of a, I'm putting in quotations, an outbreak of cases. Right. What they don't tell you is, was anybody sick? Did anybody go to the hospital? Was, there, was anybody even symptomatic? So without contextualizing that data, it sounds like outbreak at North Carolina. That sounds bad, but it, it wasn't bad. They, the bunch of kids tested positive for a virus that's not even going to make them sick. So to play devil's advocate a little bit here, and, and I understand your argument, but isn't this rolling a big old pair of fuzzy dice with your kids? And, you know, you send them off to college and they go to a kegger at a fraternity party or a sorority party where you got 200 kids crammed in there, you know, drinking beer out of Dixie cups and rubbing up against one another. And you're saying, well, so far they haven't gotten sick. What happens, though, if in one of these college towns you have a run on the hospital and it gets overloaded? Is, is that a possibility in your mind? And if so, would you rethink some of this data in your book? Well, in my mind, that's not a possibility, right? In my, and, and again, I'm drawing from data. Right. There's data points all over the world. There's just too many people that have been infected by this. We probably, if you take a look at America, Europe, uh, the Far East, there, there could very plausibly be 500 million people that have been infected by this virus. There just isn't any data to support that if you're healthy and really even under 50 or 60, you're, you're just not at risk. And you, the data also supports the fact that healthy younger folks do not carry it to a, a susceptible population like elderly people. That's your assertion based on the data, correct? That's correct. All right. Michael Beatrice, our guest, the book COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial, available through an exclusive arrangement with Amazon.com if, uh, if you'd like to pick it up. Uh, let me get to a text question here. And the texter says, can you explain then the concept of herd immunity? Herd immunity. Because if you're saying that a third, almost a third of the U.S. population potentially has already been infected with this, how does herd immunity work? Because I've seen, and I agree, and thank you for the text, uh, I agree that there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding about that. Right. So what happens is uh, there's two ways that you can no longer really get infected, and, and which means one gets sick and two uh, infect somebody else. One of those ways is by developing an immunity to the virus. I'll get into that in a second. The second is having what's called T-cell immunity. What that means is your, your body is simply immune to the virus, and it wouldn't even show up on an antibody test. So between those two things, uh, that's how this thing really stops. Th- that's how this stops worldwide, before we get a, it'll, and it'll happen before we get a vaccine. So 
technically speaking, they, they estimate uh, you achieve some sort of a herd immunity when you get to a maybe 50 or 60 percent level of the population. It really doesn't spread anymore once that many people have it and then they got over it and then they don't get sick and they don't uh, transmit it to somebody else. When you start adding in numbers that are in the 25 to 30 percent range in different places, and for sure this has happened in the northeast, uh, pockets of the northeast, they estimate it's happening in Florida and Texas now. You add that 30 percent or so, 25 to 30 percent uh, of people that have been uh, infected and their T-cell immunity, you're starting to get to a point where you will see decreases in cases uh, or positive tests because after a while they're it'll sort of die out because nobody will be around to transmit it. So uh, does your data tell us how many, uh, you know, in an estimation of a population base, has this T-cell immunity already baked in? Do we have any way of knowing that? Not really. So it's just come up. It's come up in certain anecdotal studies. They estimated to be probably in the teens. Uh, and interestingly, they estimated to be higher in the Far East. So there's some, some speculation that South Korea and Japan, they've had a decent number of cases, but they, uh, they, they've had very few hospitalizations and deaths. And one reason is they think that it's, there could be, there's two things, one, healthier lifestyle, fewer obese people uh, in, those, in that part of the world. But also because it is a, um, uh, a SARS virus, a coronavirus, there's thoughts that there could be some kind of built-in immunity in, in um, people's genes from the Far East. That's probably beyond my scope, but that would support, that's a reason, reasonable conclusion considering uh, Japan and, and uh, South Korea have been relatively unscathed by this. Michael Beatrice, our guest, his new book is COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial. We're talking about herd immunity right now. And Look, there are all kinds of folks, me being one of them, who's gotten a flu shot and then gotten the flu, uh, you know, later on that year, that same year, same flu season. Uh So why can that not happen with COVID or at this point, are we just not seeing it? So um, there's more than one flu virus every season. Uh, One thing that might be interesting is three years ago, 80,000 people flew in America. I didn't even know that number until I researched it, but I'll I'll share this. I got a flu shot in November, and I caught the flu twice that year. I was traveling almost every single week. I was on airplanes and hotels. And so, uh, you, you know, you do that, you just circulate, and, you know, that stuff can just happen. But what happens is the flu virus, um, the flu shots that we get generally only have a 50 to 60% hit rate. Uh, it's, a, it's, a predictive, um, it's a predictive shot uh, based on what they think the flu virus that season is going to be. Uh, it's, it's, it's the best guess, and sometimes it works and works with some people, and sometimes it doesn't. With, what's different with this is that we kind of know what the virus is. It's not a changing every year kind of a thing. Um, again, they probably will come up with a virus at some point. The real question is, by the time they come up with the virus, is anybody going to be sick by this? And I, I, I think that answer is going to be probably not. And when you say come up with a virus, you mean come up with a vaccine for the virus? Yeah, yes, come up with a vaccine for it. So I talked to a nurse a couple of days ago, and she said, "Look, I, you know, I can't, I can't say this publicly in in any way. I, you know, I can't speak for my company, but I would be. This is the nurse talk, and I would be very reticent 
to take a vaccine that's being rushed out to market so quickly. Now, you may not have any research or data on that piece, but do you think there's any validity to that, that there will be you know, a large pe- a number of people that are going to be really nervous about taking this thing right away whenever it first rolls out? Let somebody else be the guinea pig. Well, there was a CNN poll uh, that came out uh, this week, and in the CNN poll, they showed kind of a what was the poll three months ago, and what was it? What was it? Uh, I guess it would have been in late July. And in the spring, the take rate uh, for a virus, uh, excuse me, for a vaccine uh, for COVID-19 was around. It was in the high 60s, and now it's dropped down to 55 percent. So. Uh, one one reason could be what you're saying is would people rush to take uh, a vaccine that that um, maybe hasn't been proven? I think probably the bigger reason uh, that that the numbers came down is I think people are realizing that 90 you know we're probably at a fatality rate of 0.01 percent, which means one in a thousand. I think most people are realizing it's it's probably not as bad as we thought. Michael Beatrice is our guest today. He spent hundreds of hours researching COVID-19 and coronavirus for his book, COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial, available now at Amazon.com. Michael, when you were doing this research, was there something uh, along the way, because to me the numbers just blur together, but was there something that just popped out at you and surprised you, something you did not expect? Uh, Well, so I think it was all a bit of an evolution I'd have to I'd have to think hard about one single pop number, uh, but but the the high high uh, rate of fatalities that coincides with uh, with age and two to three pre-existing conditions, and then whether and then you sort of marry that up to the general population. Those two things are like, you know, there was a CDC statement that came out in March that said all age groups are equally. Uh, susceptible to the virus. That just wasn't true even in March. I mean, you could look at the cruise ship data and data we had from Italy at that moment and know that just didn't make sense. The, even then, the, the, before that CDC statement, the median age um, of fatalities was like 82. And so you knew that somebody with that expertise should have, should have connected dots and said, we need to really protect the elderly, um, but this probably is not going to be a, a general population risk. Why do you think so many world leaders went down the wrong path? I mean, if, if, if what you're suggesting is true, then uh, people like, you know, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, even you know, President Trump and, and, you know, every president, prime minister in the world took pretty extreme steps to ratchet it way back in the spring. Why did that happen when there was a preponderance of data that said, eh, maybe not so much? That's a great question. That's really the question I, I get asked most when I'm discussing this with, uh, with people. Uh, I, I think when you look at the decisions that were made in March, you could certainly draw from the cruise ship data and what was happening early in countries. Um, but you could, you could be forgiven for being too cautious. I don't think that anybody could be forgiven for being, um, you know, lax or liberal on this. And so I, I think they had to, I think the decision that was made in the moment was a very cautious and well-intended one. I think that what's happened from about May on has been downright reckless when you look at the, again, the proportionate response of lockdowns and the high unemployment and the deaths of despair. I don't know if you know this, but 
fatalities or deaths in people 25 to 44 are actually way up this year, um, all cause deaths, and they're not from COVID-19, they're from deaths of despair, meaning things like overdoses and suicides and deaths prompted by depression, things like that. There's a, there's a real cost to this stuff. Um, and so I think that the decisions early on, uh, forgivable. I think that once you get 45 days of data and kind of see what this thing looks like, the fact that we didn't open up and start to, um, the fact that we're even still in any kind of a lockdown phase is, with the data that we have is, is almost amazing and unforgivable. It sort of ties into our next text, uh, text question, and, and that is, with this debate over wearing masks, what did Michael's research uh, tell him about that in other countries and in the U.S.? So did you do any research for the book about uh, you know, mask wearing and whether that helps, whether it doesn't help? Because there certainly is mixed messaging on that uh, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I did a lot of research on that, Burke. <laughs> um, prior, prior to COVID-19 hitting, there's a plethora of data out there that's cited in medical journals that, uh, that did not support, I'm putting in quotations, face coverings or any non-respirator mask as a valuable blocker of uh, viral particles, aerosol particles, which is how this gets transmitted. Uh, then what happened after... COVID-19 hit is you started to see some of those articles disappear. Some would get downright redacted. I actually cited this in my book uh, and, and showed, showed a redacted article and then I found it in the archives. It's amazing to me. Uh, so the study came out a couple days ago. This was very interesting. Respirator masks and N95, 97% effective at blocking aerosol particles. Um, a surgical mask, uh, and my brother's a surgeon and he wears one of those, they're if they're tied in the back, they're 68% effective. And if they use loops, they're only 38% effective. Oh, wow. A typical, a typical face covering, meaning a bandana, a gaiter, one of these fashionable uh, face masks that you might be able to buy at the store, buy online that might have your, your college logo on it or your favorite rock band. Yep. Um, those, those drop down to be about 18% effective. So what you're seeing is places that were very, very either diligent or militant about uh, wearing masks. So that, some examples of that are Japan, the Philippines. Uh, while they didn't have high fatalities and they were good mask wearers, they did end up with high case rates this summer, long after wearing masks. Los Angeles ended up having a pretty decent outbreak, um, huge numbers of cases, and uh, some hospitalizations and certainly a summer spike compared to the spring in fatalities, and they've been wearing masks outdoors since June. So I think what you need to sort of fuss up here is that it's a virus, and any of these little mitigation techniques, they're just not going to stop that path. It's, it's just not an airtight path. The only way through this uh, uh, is, is to just live through it and protect those vulnerable segments of the population. Do you wear a mask when you go out in public? Um, I, Texas has a state order, and I have to wear a mask, and I, I do my part. And I, I think it makes everybody feel good, but if I was not required to wear a mask, I would not own a mask. That's interesting. So, so you do it, uh, A, because it's the law, and B, uh, to help other people feel more comfortable. And, and frankly, that seems like a pretty small sacrifice to make in the overall scheme of things. Um, so what's it like in Texas where you are right now? How serious are people taking 
their mask wearing and their social distancing. When you walk out the door, you're in Dallas, correct? Yes. Uh, I think day-to-day life, I don't see much in the way of social distancing. Uh, everybody wears a mask indoors uh, anywhere you go. It's the law. And I, I think that there's a uh, um, pretty good following of that, pretty good discipline. So, uh, you know, this is just not one of those things you're going to win by being a rebel and, and deciding I'm not I'm not going to be a mask. You won't get served anywhere. You won't be able to shop. You won't be able to get served at a restaurant. But think of the absurdity of this. You can walk into walk up to a restaurant's door without a mask. You have to put it on when you walk in. You have to keep it on when you walk the 15 feet to your table, and then you can take it back off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, those are the kinds of things that I think make people crazy. Uh, you know, the, I've got a, a friend who uh, is in the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce in, in her home county, and in that state, uh, wedding receptions and other public events, uh, you know, can have however many people that they want to have. But if it's if it's a, a concert or a music event, you can only have 25 people there. And that makes no sense to me. OK, so you have a wedding reception with 300 people, but you, you can only have 25 or less for a concert or a church service or a funeral service. So there seems to be a lot of that happening out there where uh, it's very scattered. Michael Beatrice has done a ton of research for his book, COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial. What, what does your research tell you if you extrapolate it out for the future? Where is America going to be uh, three months from now, six months from now, next year? Because as this drags on, there seems to be this, this sort of malaise over people that, my God, this is never going to come to an end. Can you, can you extrapolate from all that data that you crunched as to where this is going to go? Boy, uh, that, so it's, it's a difficult question to answer uh, with any certainty because look at all the models that were wrong leading into this. That's true. So I think, it's, I think it's better to take the leading indicators from all the data that we have. So the data that we have, the median age of fatalities at around 82 isn't going anywhere. That's, that's a constant. Um, that's very unlikely to change. Um, the fact that nobody really uh, under... 50 or so uh, dies without a pre-existing condition, and obesity is the runaway number, uh, or excuse me, pre-existing condition for people under, you know, 50 or 60. Then if you've got a couple other uh, respiratory or heart conditions, high blood pressure, those those could make you susceptible. Those things aren't going away. So you've got a couple things. You've got nursing homes have been pretty infiltrated in the spring, and probably a lot of those vulnerable people, unfortunately, didn't survive that, and they're not with us now. Those could be future fatalities that survive or that, that won't be there. And then the people that are still in those nursing homes probably have some immunity. Based on the younger age population really not being affected, it's unlikely that we will have a, quote, second wave that will be anything like what we've experienced um, really in March, April, and May. Well, that's a relief uh, for most folks. So so your research tells you that the median age of folks that, that pass from COVID is 82. So is it, a, is it a fair statement to say then, Michael, based on the research you did for your book, COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial, if you're over 80, if you are very heavy set, um, this is a real deal and you need to take – big precautions. If you are not over 80, you are not obese, you're not super heavy set or have another serious respiratory condition, 
the odds are in your favor. Nothing's foolproof, but the odds are in your favor. Is that a, a good crystallization of what, what you learned? Yes, I'd probably lower that age. I mean, I'd err on the side of caution, so I'd lower that age down at, down into the low 70s uh, as precautionary. Uh, if I was 72 years old and healthy, I would be much more cautious than I am at 50 years old and, and healthy. Um, but, again, the data shows that really there's, there hasn't really been a lot of 70-year-olds that haven't survived this that didn't have an underlying condition that you just mentioned. Okay, so if you're, uh, if you're 70 years old and older, do you go out to eat at restaurants? Uh, I, I think you could go out and, and eat in a restaurant, depending on kind of what's happening in your area. Uh, I, I would do that. Uh, but I, I, I wouldn't do it. The, I wouldn't do those social activities the same that I do now. Uh, and I think that's the real difference is you, you need to, the people that are potentially more vulnerable, they should be doing different things even now. But for the general population, they should be doing things normal. Uh, and, and instead, what we're doing is this, this one-size-fits-all, and, and, and the virus isn't a one-size-fits-all. You know, I think that's, that's very prescient. Uh, you know, as things do gradually begin to open back up, some movie theaters in certain places are opening back up. Maybe you think about how you do that and you do it in a different way. If you're going to travel on an airplane – Boy, I would not want to be uh, the middle seat guy or have a middle seat there, but that doesn't mean you can't fly. So uh, I think erring on the side of caution, especially if you're 70-plus uh, or if, if you uh, are obese or, or have those other secondary conditions, makes a lot of sense. One final question, and that is with the preponderance of information that's out there. And, man, it is all over the road in terms of what to expect what are, along with your book, of course, COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial, what are some trusted sources? How can we weed through this plethora of information that we're just all flooded with and kind of get the real deal and get some real guidance? Because it sure as hell is not going to be from politicians on either side um, and sometimes not even physicians. I think about the Surgeon General, who was very strident in saying, you don't need masks. Forget about masks. And a week later, got to wear the mask. So, so when you got that kind of stuff going on, how did you do it? How do you figure out what to really pay attention to? Do you have a couple of sources that we can look at? Yeah. So lockdowns on trial has about 325 footnotes, uh, and another hundred charts. Uh, and most of that is all, uh, government oriented data, uh, the charts. Most of my sources, uh, came from, uh, medical journal articles, uh, from, Metarex 4 and The Lancet. I found those to be credible, more objective, uh, and, and they fit the logic test. So there, I, I, I mentioned to you that there was an article that came out today in Life Science that suggested that COVID-19 could end up worse than the Spanish flu. That's an absurd assertion. Um, and, and so you've, you've got to be careful reading any of these headlines uh, I think it's got to pass the logic test. Look around you. Look at what hospitalizations are doing. Look at some of the hard data and kind of process it yourself, almost like I did. But my sources have, have uh, predominantly been looking at uh, journal analysis in The Lancet and Metarex. Here's what I love about you and I love about this book, Michael. First of all, it is all very common sense driven. It's data driven, but it's also not uh, a, a political thing for you. This is Here's where the research takes me. 
and I'm presenting that information, and, and there's no histronics going on. <laughs> this, is, this is just where the numbers led you. So thank you for, for taking time to give us uh, what I think is some cautious optimism and good news. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Yeah, I hope not even. Ca- I hope there's great news out there. We've made such great progress. We're learning so much. Uh, I, I think there's great news. Again, like you mentioned, uh, or asked me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.